Well, if you're new today, welcome. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. Just glad that you're joining us. To all of you, uh, just glad to have you here today. You know, it's this Christmas season that we're in now, and, and beginning last week, we began this series looking at the, the, the name that is above every name, a, a Jesus name, and the titles that Jesus was given when he was born. And la- last week, we started by talking about Jesus as King. And today, we come to the second title that we're going to look at. It's another title that was given at his birth. It's the title Savior. And this title was given, uh, is recorded twice, both in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. Here's what Matthew says. Beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then uh, Luke picks up the story in Luke chapter 2, and here's what it says there. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, says this, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Both times an angel appears and and announces that the child that is to be born will be the Savior. It begins in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, he appears to Joseph. And, and in it, he tells Joseph that his fiancée Mary was would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, that that's how she was pregnant, and that they were going to have a baby, and that they were to call his name Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked up what your name means. I, I looked up what my name means. My name is Jonathan, and it means given by God or a gift of God, which is pretty nice. I like that. But my middle name is Earl, which I have never liked. It, you know, kind of feels kind of backcountry a little bit or reminds me of a restaurant chain. And so I've never really loved that name. But, but I looked up the name Earl and it turns out that the name Earl means warrior. I'm like, wow, that, that, that actually feels a lot, a lot better. In fact, if my name were the other way around, if my name were Earl Jonathan, it would mean warrior given by God. Now, that, that's a name. Uh, but I love, of course, the name I've got. But these days, you know, we don't think about what our names mean that much. It's not that significant. But in the ancient world, a person's name and what it meant was really important. And, and, and no, no more so than the name that was to be given to this, this child that was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was so important that the name was not chosen by the child's parents, but rather was chosen in heaven. 
and delivered by an angel and announced to the parents, this is what you are to call this child. You are to give him the name Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, is the English version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And Yeshua is a name that is composed of two words. The first part of that name is composed from the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. And then the second part is from the Hebrew word Yasha, meaning to save. In other words, the name that, that this child was to be given, Jesus, Yeshua, literally means Yahweh or God saves. So every time that you pray to Jesus, Every time that you call out to Jesus, every time that you use his name, you're declaring that he saves, that God saves, and that God saves through Jesus. And, and this, is, this is where this story starts. This is, this is why Jesus is the name above every other name. And, and in fact, when the angel tells Joseph that he is to call the baby that is to be born Jesus, he says this, for he will save his people. Same thing that he says that the angels say when they, they see the shepherds, right? Same thing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, in our world today, we don't, we don't talk about saviors very much. It's not really a common, common word. But a Savior, I mean, the definition is a Savior is someone who rescues you from grave danger. And someone who, there's someone who rescues you from a situation that you can't get out of yourself. So, for instance, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a conversation with someone that's really boring or, or, or really awkward and you, you just like, I, I, I can't get out of this conversation. I don't, I don't know what to do. And someone comes and kind of rescues you from that conversation. Ah, that's really kind of them. But you wouldn't turn around and say, oh, you're my savior. Well, maybe you would, but it's not really the right use of the word, right? Or, or sometimes like uh, on a, when I come down in the morning to, to go to work or on a Sunday morning, one of my kids or my wife looks at me and they're like, oh, you should not wear that combination of clothes today. And they, they do a bit of an intervention and, you know, they say, let's go back to your closet and see if we can make it match. They're kind of saving me from a fashion disaster, but I wouldn't really call them saviors in my world either because I'm not in some grave danger and, and, and I probably could really figure it out if I really worked at it. On the other hand, on the other hand, if I, if I were driving a, my, my car across a bridge in the middle of a flood and the waters came and washed that bridge out when I was on it, I end up stuck on, on the top of my car in a raging river with the waters rising and there was no possible way for me to get to the shore. And, and I was going to die unless somebody intervened. And somebody came and risked their life to save me. That person, that person would be a savior. That's what the word Savior means. And the angels say that Jesus is a Savior. But unfortunately, in, in our world, among many Christians even, we have a misunderstanding of what kind of Savior Jesus is. Some people, not probably consciously, but subconsciously, would, would consider Jesus to be the Savior who is supposed to save them from a bad day. Save them from hurt feelings and, and, and feeling bad. Others think that Jesus' job as Savior is to save them from a hard life. You know, if they follow Jesus, that he should rescue them from anything that's really hard in their life. That's the kind of savior he should be. You know, still others think that Jesus should rescue them from being poor or rescue them from even being middle class. I mean, the kind of salvation that they look to Jesus for is that he would rain down money on them, that they would be always rich and always healthy. Still others think that the kind of savior that Jesus should be is the kind who, who saves our culture who saves us from bad 
politics the, from the wrong political party, from the wrong, you know, governmental decisions. Uh, they, they, they think that he's a savior who saved us from the wrong politics or from, from, you know, economic oppression or from cultural drift. But that isn't the kind of savior that Jesus is. The angel, when he announced that Jesus was to be born and that he would be the savior of his people, made it abundantly clear, beyond question, what kind of savior he was. This is what he said. He said to Joseph, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's not going to, I mean, he is. He's going to save his people from something that to them is a grave danger, sin, and, and that will utterly destroy them if it doesn't save them. That, that's what he came to save us. That's the kind of Savior that Jesus is. You know, in um, 1942, height of World War II, uh, BBC uh, Radio in, in England invited an Oxford professor named C.S. Lewis to give a series of lectures on the radio for the whole nation. And they asked him to explain in simple terms what Christianity was all about. And so he gave this series of brilliant lectures that were later turned into a book by him called Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, you should read it, whether you've been a Christian all your life or, or have never really explored Christianity. It's just brilliant, insightful, simple way of understanding what Christianity is all about. But the first three or four chapters, actually the first five chapters of Mere Christianity are all about sin all about what sin is and, and how we understand it. And he argues it very clearly that, that there is this, this thing called sin in the world that he, he builds a, a great case for it. And, and then at the end of that section, he's writing, of course, to people who are exploring Christianity. Uh, he was talking to them on the radio. At the end of the section, he explains why it is that he started here at sin when it comes to explaining what Christianity is all about. This is what he writes. My reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I've been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and, and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this, and not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. In other words, what he's saying is this, if you don't believe that sin is a real thing, then you don't believe that there's a need for a Savior. Even if you call yourself a Christian, if you think that the whole sin thing is kind of overplayed, that, that, that Jesus really is primarily about teaching us to live good moral lives or or that he's the kind of savior that we just talked about, save all these other things, then what C.S. Lewis is saying is that you, you might be a good religious person, you might be a very good religious person, but you surely are not a Christian. You see, see at the very heart of Christianity, the, the very essence of Christianity is that we are sinners who are hopelessly in trouble and cannot save ourselves and that we need a savior. Now, of course, there's much more to that, but it's nothing less than that. Without that, you are not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. Now, the thing about sin is it's not a particularly popular idea these days. You know, we, we, we uh, all of us have grown up in this, in this Western secular worldview that denies the, the concept of, of human sinfulness. 
This idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that, that somehow each of us is bent in some way that, that, that you know, the, the, at the core of our being, we're kind of warped out of shape. This, this is an idea that's out of fashion these days. It, it's kind of considered this cultural heresy. It's kind of a considered a hangover from the, from the past. Instead, what we've replaced that with, it's not a need for a savior, but a need for better politics, better, better social policies, for more education, for, for some kind of killer app technology that, that will change how we think and solve the kinds of problems in the world. And, 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 and because our society denies this idea of you know, human sin, because of that, we have to blame others for all the problems in the world. So you, you find this everywhere. I mean, if you listen to talk radio for five minutes, you just see this blame shifting happening everywhere. The right blames the problems of the world on, on, on too much government, on illegal immigrants, on Hollywood. The, the, the left blames the problems of the world on religion, on, on unsophisticated folk from the rural area, the small towns. They, they, they blame it on Wall Street. It, and, and it doesn't matter what the issue is. It doesn't matter how big or little, how, how close or far the issue is. The, the answer to the problems is always, always to blame someone else. And the ongoing denial of sin in the human heart is deeply fracturing our society and, of course, is doing incredible damage to our relationship to God. And, and yet our culture doesn't want to acknowledge that sin is a thing. It, it doesn't want to accept that. Instead, we continue to think that somehow we can just, in our own strength, solve these issues. In fact, uh, the, the uh, Harvard professor uh, Steven Pinker uh, wrote on the World Economic Forum an article talking about the, the profound progress of, of, of enlightened thinking. And in fact, he has all kinds of, of backing for that. And he speaks of sort of the huge progress that is made. And, it, and that somehow in our human strength and our human ingenuity, we can accomplish the kind of utopian world that we all long for. The problem is, if you read his stuff, it's just a modern version, a reworking of, of an argument that is, is an old argument, a long round. In fact, it sounds, in a modern way, like the very writings of G.H. H.G. Wells back in the year 1937. Listen to what he wrote back then. He said this, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. I mean, he says, look, we're just getting going. It just goes better to better. But he wrote that in 1937, three years before the outbreak of World War II and the, and the massive evil and devastation of that war. And in 1946, the year after the war, this is what he writes. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. H.G. Wells held this view, and yet with his eyes he witnessed. As good as it looked like it was going to be, it just wasn't going to happen. 
It, it, it can't. We can't in our own strength. And it's still the problem today. The other day I turned on CBC News mid-sentence. The words coming out of the, the, the talk show's mouth were genocide in Africa. And it just goes on, uh, on from there. It's just hard to avoid the conclusion, no matter how you look at it, that there is something fundamentally wrong with the world. And the, and the thing that is fundamentally wrong with the world is sin in the human heart. Now, if you deny that sin is a real thing, and, and again, in our culture, it's fairly common to do. It, it, if you deny that sin is a real thing, and, and that you deny then that we, there is no God, that we don't need a Savior, the, the question that has to be answered is, is this, where does this fundamental concept of sin, uh, not of sin, but of right and wrong in the human species come from? I mean, it, this is the question that C.S. Lewis poses at the beginning of mere Christianity. And if, if you really want to work it out well, you should read what he says. But, but really he asks this, look, if we evolve like the animals do, they, they just have the law of the jungle. They, they have no innate sense that there is a right and a wrong that guides them, that, 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 that causes them to pause when they're about to do something that somewhere deep in their heart they know is wrong. And he, wants, he asks this question, where does that come from if we just have evolved into the species that we are? How, how do we develop that? Now, some people would say, well, it's a social construct. It, it, it's what a culture has de determined is best for that culture. He says, fair enough. Different cultures have different sort of standards, although all humans have a basic understanding of right and wrong. But, but some cultures say our view of what's right and wrong is better than yours. Our view of how we treat and understand women is better than another culture's view. And he says, fair enough, but, but how can you say that your view is better than others unless somewhere there's an understanding that there is an ultimate correct view? He says, let me give you an example. He says, look, your perception of what New York is like and mine doesn't really matter if there isn't a real New York. But if there is a real New York out there, then you can measure which perception is closer and truer to the real New York than the other one. But there has to be a real ultimate standard by which you can tell which way is right, more right or better than the other. And he says, that means that there must be some higher standard of right and wrong. And on our gut, we know it. And frankly, even though we know it, we still break that standard all the time. Now, when someone else breaks the standard of what we just in our gut know is right and wrong, I mean, we're indignant, we're incensed. How could they? How would they? But when we do it, yeah, it's a little different, isn't it? I mean, we, we know that we did something wrong, but there's a, there's a good reason for it. We're, we're running late, or we're tired, or we're hungry, or, or we're worried. So when we keep that standard of right and wrong, we say, ah, oh, that's my good character. But when we don't, we, we have excuses. But the fact of the matter is, we all know that we have regularly broken this standard of what is right and what is wrong. And so Lewis says, look, they, for all humans, they, there is what he would call a moral law, one which we did not invent, and yet which we know is, the, is there, that we ought to obey it, even if sometimes we try to, try to suppress it. And, and the best explanation for where that thing in us comes from, he says, comes from some sort of power outside of ourselves, some sort of reality outside of it. And he says that power, that being, is intensely interested, obviously, in right conduct, in fair play, in unselfishness, in, in honesty and truthfulness. And the, and the logical conclusion to come to 
in all of that is that the universe is governed by some sort of force that is about absolute goodness. He says it's governed by God. And so this is what he writes. Here's what he says. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts in the long run are hopeless. But if it is, then we're making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. And we're not the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it. And we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally. And we have made ourselves his enemy. Goodness is either the greatest safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we, we have reacted the wrong way. That's where the logic leads. But it's also what the Bible reveals to us about who God is. It's what his word reveals to us. He is Yahweh, the the great I am. He is a God who is uh, the creator of the universe and utterly holy and, and righteous in all of his ways. There is no sin in him. Indeed, the God who is sovereign over all and can do all things is incapable of sinning. He opposes sin. He hates sin. The psalmist writes this. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. See, when God created this world, he created it good. He created humanity, humans good, without sin. But the first humans, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, I mean, they chose they chose to try to be like God. They, they rebelled against God, said, we're making ourselves God. And as a result, sin entered them. And through them, sin entered all of humanity so that all of us are born with a bent towards sin. It's in our, it's in our very nature who we are. The Apostle Paul sums it up just so simply. In Romans 3.23, he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says all. No, no distinction. It doesn't matter your, your race, your your, your your background, your experience. There's no mitigating circumstances you can point to. doesn't matter your character. Every single human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequences of sin. I mean, the consequences of sin are wide-ranging. At the most personal level, sin is dehumanizing. Sin, sin leads us to become less human. Because we miss the mark that God has created and designed for us to be. And that's why God doesn't usually lift a finger to sort of formally punish us when we sin. The sin itself becomes our punishment. For example, I mean, take porn. I mean, if you're involved in, in, in watching a lot of porn, I mean, it warps your mind. It, it, it forms in you an inability to see women or, or men as anything other than objects of satisfaction. And, and in your relationship, I mean, it leads to a breach of intimacy with your spouse and it, and it decreases your sexual pleasure. The punishment is in the sin. Or take lying and cheating. Uh, you know, the, the thing about lying and cheating is eventually you'll get caught. You always get caught. And, and the result is that this web of lies and cheating that you built, I mean, it crashes around you with all kinds of consequences in your world. Or take gossip. I mean, the, the person who gossips... It, it, Eventually, the people around them stop trusting them because they begin to worry that that same person who is gossiping to them is going to turn around and gossip about them to other people. And and so the result is that they stop 
trusting that person and they withdraw from that person. And that person who gossips ends up feeling, you know, angry and cynical. And then they begin to be paranoid about what others are saying about them. And in the end, the person who gossips ends up being really quite lonely. The, the, the punishment for our sin is in the sin itself. But sometimes, sometimes the sin isn't in the negative things that we do, but rather the sin is, is the result of some of the really good things we do just in the wrong way. Augustine, the early church father, he defined sin this way. He called it disordered love. In other words, he said there are these things that we love, good things that we love, and they kind of are in an order in our life in terms of which we love most and then next and next. He says, but if you get those things out of order, then it becomes sinful in your life. Then it becomes an idol. So, for example, he says, you know, if you love something more than God, if you put that in the wrong place in your life, that becomes sin. If you love, your, you know, maybe your girlfriend or your children or your career or your retirement fund or whatever it is, if you get those good things in the wrong order, the problem is that you begin to look to those things for hope and meaning and identity and purpose. But when they fail you, because they always will, because they're not God, when they fail you, that brings chaos. That brings crisis into your life. And there's a consequence for that sin in your life as well. You see, our sin has a profound impact on our own personal lives. But also has a profound impact, profound ramifications on the people around us. I mean, the, the, the sin in our life leads to broken relationships and, and deep hurts, a lack of trust, damaged sense of, of identity. It leads to physical and, and emotional pain. And I mean, you can fill a book. You can fill books with the kind of pain that sin causes in the lives of others. And not only that, it's not only brokenness in our own lives and brokenness in the lives of others, but it's brokenness in our relationship with God himself. Here's what what the prophet Isaiah writes. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. You see, sin brings destruction and devastation to every level of our lives, everything that it touches. And again, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he sums it up so simply and succinctly. He, he writes this in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't mean instant physical death when you sin. Rather, it means that, that the consequences of your sin leads invariably and inextricably to death in all kinds of areas in your life. Death in your sense of, of your humanity. Death in your relationship with others. Death in your relationship with God. And ultimately, eternal death and eternity apart from God. Sin. Sin is a real thing, and, and, and it's insidious in what it does in the world around us and in our own lives. So the question is, what's the solution? I mean, what, what, do, we, what do we do about sin? And the answer, the answer that the Bible teaches us is that the, the solution is to repent, to turn back to God. The problem is, that's not so easy for us to do. You see, repenting isn't just saying, God, I did some bad things, you know, please, please forgive me. Repenting means changing how we live. It means submitting ourselves to God. It, it, it means surrendering ourselves to his will. It means dying to ourselves. And those things, 
I mean, those things are not easy. You have to be a good person to truly repent. And that's the problem. You know, only a bad person, only someone who struggles with sin, all of us, really. We're the only ones who have to repent. But only a, a good person, someone who has never sinned, can repent perfectly. And the only person who could perfectly repent would be a perfect person who has never sinned, and they won't need to repent. And, and yet it's the only way to be right with God. There isn't any other way. You can't come to God without repenting. Anything short of repentance is kind of a, a Band-Aid solution, like, hey, God, I did some things wrong. I'm kind of sorry. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. It doesn't do anything. You have to repent. But you can't do it in your own strength. That's, this, is the, this, is the, this is the challenge. The same badness which makes it necessary for us to repent makes it impossible for us to do so. Apostle Paul, he, he, he looked at this problem. Here's what he says about it. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul says, look, before God did a work in your life, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you know what thing about a dead person? They can't do anything. Certainly you can't repent. You can't do something positive if you're dead spiritually, which means that we need a savior. We need we need someone else to give us the strength to be able to repent. We need the only perfect being, God, to, to kind of enter into us and give us the strength to, to repent. The problem is that, that God, by his nature, doesn't do any of the things that repentance requires. God, by his nature, doesn't, never surrenders. God, in his nature, never suffers or submits or dies. That's not God's nature. It would he wouldn't be God if he did that. He, he, we need him to, to do this in our life, but in his nature, he doesn't do it. Unless, unless, of course, he becomes a man. Unless he takes on flesh. Unless he's born in a stable, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a, in a manger. So then our nature, a nature that can die, a nature that, that can submit, a nature that can suffer, can be joined with God's nature, a nature that, that doesn't suffer, that, that didn't have to die, and that would never submit because he's God. So that the two natures can be combined in one person, and that person could save us. He could surrender his will, and he could suffer and die because he was a man like us, or a human like us, and he could do it perfectly because he was God. You see, you and I can only repent if God does it in us. But God can only do it in us if he becomes a man. You know, our attempt at this dying will only succeed if, if we share in God's dying. But we can't share in God's dying unless God dies. And God can't die unless he becomes a man. So that's what he did. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the incarnation. God became man. And then he took on the sin that was in us. The Apostle Paul writes this. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
that's good news. Je Jesus became the Savior for our sins. And so he was born in Bethlehem, and he grew up in Nazareth, and he began his ministry. And, and in his ministry, he was given another title. We're talking about the titles of Jesus. He was given another title, but this not from an angel, not from God. This was a title given to him by the religious people of the day. And this one was meant as a slur. But Jesus wore it, I think, as a badge of honor. The title that they gave him was Friend of Sinners. Because see, Jesus, when he came, he hung out with sinners. He hung out with people who, who messed up, who broke the, 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 this sort of moral law all the time. Because you see, God loves sinners. He, you know, he, he loves the people. He, he wants to rescue us and save us. But he hates the sin. He, he, he opposes the sin. You know, at one point, Jesus in his ministry, he's, he's doing this ministry, and one of the religious leaders is trying to figure out what Jesus is all about. And so he comes to him late, late at night, and he and Jesus enter into this brilliant conversation. And when they get to the heart of it, Jesus explains what he's all about. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation on people. That's not what it's about. Jesus came to live a perfect life, a sinless life, so that he could rescue us from, from something that we can't possibly rescue ourselves, no matter how hard we try, because it's in our very nature to sin. And so Jesus came and, and he lived this sinless life, and then he willingly took our sins upon him and willingly hung and died on a cross. And there the wrath and the punishment for our sins that was due to us was poured out on him. And as a result, he saved us from our sins. As a result, he brings salvation into our world. God loves us so much that he sent his son to be the savior of the world. This is why Jesus came. This is why Christmas is such a big deal for we who follow Jesus. Because it's about a Savior that was born unto us. Someone who would rescue us, not from bad days, not from a hard life, not, not from being poor or even middle class, not, not from the political problems that are out there, but someone who would rescue us from the greatest danger of all, from the sin in our own lives. The sin that ultimately will destroy us if somebody doesn't rescue us from it. You see, sin is real. Sin is so real, and God takes it so seriously. Literally, for God, sin is a matter of life and death. The question is, do you take sin that seriously? Can you see its effects on your life? On the lives of the people around you, on the broader world around you? I mean, to deny that sin is a real thing is to leave you with only the option to be able to blame, try to blame everyone else for what is going on in the world, or to simply ignore and pretend that there's nothing wrong. Both of which are rather naive to do. It's a little bit like finding out that you have lung cancer from smoking cigarettes, and either blaming the cigarette company or, or, or pretending that you don't have cancer, even though you do. Either way. You're going to die from it if you don't acknowledge that this thing is going on in your life and that you need a savior. You need some kind of medicine that's going to help you beat it. There are two ways that Jesus saves us. The first way is what theologians call justification. It, it, 
It's that moment when by the power of God at work in your life, you acknowledge that you're a sinner. That, that, that you have rebelled against God and set yourself up as your, own, as your own God. And you repent by the power of God at work in your life and you believe in Jesus. And if that's you, if you're here today and you, you, or if you're listening today and you, you know, you say, no, 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 I, I, I didn't realize that, that I was a sinner, but now I do. I, I realize this is an issue in the world. It's not out there. It's not, it's a real thing. If that's you, I want to invite you today to allow Jesus to come and to save you, to, to, to allow his salvation in your life from something that will destroy you if you don't allow him to save you. And, and it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you've ever heard this idea or whether you are someone who's been exploring questions of faith for a while. Or maybe you've been someone who's been at church for years and years and years, but you've never really dawned on you that this is what it's all about. If that's you, I want to invite you today to turn to Jesus, to repent. And the way you do that, I mean, it's just, you just pray silently or you can pray aloud. It doesn't matter. And you just say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And, and, and that I have rebelled against you. And God, I ask you to forgive me for my sins. And I accept what Jesus did on my behalf. And I, I put my trust in you. I, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. And if you do that, I mean, if you do that, in that moment, you are saved. You are, what we say, justified. You are right before God in a right relationship with him. And, and man, you enter a whole new world of what he wants to do in your life. This is the first way that Jesus saves but there's a second way that Jesus saves us from our sin. If justification is a one-time, once-in-your-lifetime kind of event, at that moment that you put your trust in Jesus, there's a second way that he saves us from sins. It's an ongoing salvation from our sins, and, and theologians call this one sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of having sin have less and less power and control in your life. And that's a lifelong salvation that we look to Jesus for. You know, uh, I, I, I am not the person that I want to be. I, I'm certainly not the person that Jesus calls me to be, not, not, not even close. But I'm working in that direction. I'm moving in that direction. But it's only because of the work of Jesus in my life. You know, because of Jesus and work in my life, I'm a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better human being than I would be if Jesus wasn't in my life because he's at work changing me. Now, listen, that, that doesn't mean that I think that I'm better than someone who isn't a non-Christian. That's, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, I know uh, people who aren't followers of Jesus who live better moral lives than me and are, are better people. So I'm not saying that I'm better than them. What I'm saying, though, is that there's a progression happening in my life. There's a growth happening in my life, slowly. But it is because Jesus is in the process of saving me from the sins that entangle me. And he does that for everyone who puts their trust in him. It's called the process of sanctification. And the question for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this. Are you allowing Jesus to do that process in your life? Are you taking your sin seriously? Or, or as a Christian, have you started to say, well, you know, I'm no, I know sin, but, but Jesus saved me and died, he died for my sin, so it's, it's whatever, I can do it. No, 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 no. Sin is something that God takes so seriously. Sin brings destruction and devastation in your life. So even though Jesus paid the price for your sin, the call for you is to allow your Savior to begin, to continue rather, 
to work the sin out of your life, to, to, to draw the sin away from you. The Apostle Paul, again, he writes this when it comes to the sin in our lives. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, when you are baptized and if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be baptized. If you're not, if you're not, you need to be baptized. But when you are baptized, it was a sign, not saying, hey, I'm free to just carry on sinning, but to say, no, no, I've been transformed. I've been changed. Jesus shed his blood so that I could be free from my sin. So that means I live in the newness of life that I have in Jesus and that I'm not walking in my sin. I'm not continuing on in my sin. Here's a question for you. Are there sins in your life that you need to repent of today? Right now, like right now. Uh, maybe they're those kind of negative sins, they're things like porn or, or you know, lying or cheating or, or gossip, that, those kinds of things. But maybe the sin that you need to repent of in your life is about disordered love. I mean, you, you're not doing all that stuff, but, but you just have wrong, wrong, these good things are just in the wrong order in your life. And you need to repent and say, no, 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 God, you first. And then these other things in the right order so that they don't bring chaos in my life later on if there's a failure in those areas. The call, the invitation is to have a Savior in our life who can do what only He can do. Save us from our sins. You know, when the angels appeared to those shepherds, when they, when they came to them in, in the fields on that Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago, this is what it says. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They say, this is good news. This is, this is freedom for you from sin. A Savior has come. And, and after that, I mean, after they, they announced this good news, they broke into worship and, and they glorified God. A glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace and goodwill to men. When you allow the Savior into your life, he brings peace into your life. It's a goodwill to all who will receive it. And when you receive that kind of Savior, when you know that you're saved by that kind of a, a good God, that should lead you to worship. Let me pray with you, and then, then we're going to close with a song of worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, that though you are a holy God, though you are utterly righteous, though there, there is no sin in you, that yet you love us so deeply that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. God, you sent him to become one of us, so that he could rescue us from something that we in our own strength can't possibly extract ourselves from. A thing that, that if he doesn't save us, will destroy our lives. And, and Father, this morning, we, this day, we worship you. We thank you for saving us through Jesus. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. And Father, where there is sin, God, where there is sin in our lives, oh God, we pray that you would Bring that to light. God, that we would not treat it lightly, but God, that we would flee from that sin in our lives, that we would press back into Jesus because it is in him that we find life. And it's in our sin that there is death. 
And so, God, would you lead us back to life? Would you lead us away from sin by the power of your spirit at work in us? And God, this Christmas again, we celebrate. We rejoice in who Jesus is and what he came to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.